welcome back to the podcast. I know you guys have been waiting a long time and we're so happy to be back. This is Untangling the Lines and I am now one of your hosts, Dr. Lauren Duffy. I am a veterinary anesthesiologist working in private practice and I am joined by my dear friend, Dr. Kelly Varner. Good morning. My name is Dr. Kelly Varner, and I'm also a boarded veterinary anesthesiologist. Lauren and I were actually resident mates, so we've been around um, a long time together. I actually work in academia currently, um, and I'm really excited to be joining the podcast with you all. This is going to be so much fun. You guys are in for a treat. So, all right. So it's been two years, and I left you hanging on a part two of a three-part series that I do as hypotension rounds for my technicians and students and residents and things. And so, so far, we have covered generally the merits of blood pressure, why we care, how we measure it, what's um, Dopplers, arterial lines, whatever the gold standard is, always art lines. And we have also gone over a whole bunch of different definitions. We've talked about what we call the cardiac output tree of life. That's what I call it. So that's where... Cardiac output is essentially determined by the heart rate and stroke volume. Stroke volume being the amount of blood the heart is pumping with each beat. So however many times the heart does that pumping in one minute, which is the heart rate, that's going to determine how much total blood flow we have. The stroke volume, or how much blood is being pumped per beat, is determined both by how well the heart is filled or full, and that's our preload, how much resistance it has to pump against, that's our afterload, and how strong of a force it can actually pump with, and that's our contractility. So these three factors determine your stroke volume, and so and when we're trying to evaluate reasons for why our patient is hypotensive, we tend to evaluate each of those three components and our heart rates kind of on their own. We also talked about the concept of what's called relative hypovolemia, and this is something that we will actually be mostly addressing with today's discussion. And so I just wanted to remind everyone that relative hypovolemia refers to the concept that because of vasodilation in the large veins causing increased pooling of blood in the veins, the blood is actually not being directed back to the heart to then, you know, recycle through the next beat. The way I really like to think about this is like, a very simple thing, right? So if you take a pipe that is like one size and you are running fluid through that size, that fluid is going to exert a certain amount of pressure on that tube, right? And that is going to help us. And that's ideally what we're doing in the vascular and the arterial system is we're changing pressure within the vessels to change distribution of fluid in our body, right? And like promote perfusion of different areas and that sort of thing. Like the kidney is very good at that, right? Changing the yep. size of the vessel to change the pressure as it's entering the, the kidney. And so when we give isoflurane or sevoflurane or desflurane or propofol, any of those things that cause vasodilation, we essentially expand the tube, which is going to decrease the amount of pressure that that fluid can exert. And so it's this idea of relative hypovolemia is not that the fluid that the patient is lacking fluid within the vessel, it's that the vessel has changed size, which now relatively there is less fluid inside the vessel exerting less pressure. Exactly. Yeah. And I think no one really I th no one really pays enough attention to the venous side of circulation. Everyone focuses so much on arterial blood pressure and such when the veins really play just as much of an important role. And so 
things that we're going to be talking about today will be geared to reducing the size of that tube and kind of restoring the tension within the vasculature to then essentially push fluid back from the veins back into the heart so that way it can go ahead and participate in the next beat. And the reason why we care about this preload, right, is not just like if there's no blood in the heart for the heart to pump, it can beat as many times a minute as we want it to. But the cardiac output's going to be bad, right? Because it's it's a basic formula. Heart rate times stroke volume. If stroke volume is zero, then it doesn't matter what heart rate is. Cardiac output is zero. And so, like, we need that preload. But then the second part of that is that that preload is important for generating the contractility of the heart. And so if we're not getting that venous return out of the venous system eventually we're going to see a decrease on the arterial side just because we're not putting enough blood through the system into the arterial system. Yeah. Couldn't say it better. That's perfect. So let's just talk about our four steps of managing hypotension that we talked about in episode two. So your patient is, is hypotensive. You have a mean blood pressure, let's say of 50. The first thing you're going to do is that you're going to take an overall evaluation of your patient. You're going to check your anesthetic depth. You're going to check out your heart rate. You might do one of those pulse pressure variation tests where you give a positive pressure breath if they're not already on a vent, and you're going to see if the waveform of either either your pulse ox or of your art line kind of flattens. Anything more than a 15% change is considered a positive response to that. You are going to evaluate your mucous membranes and your CRT. You're going to take a quick look in the suction canister, see if the entire, you know, the size of the dog of worth of blood is in the suction canister. It's usually a good tip. You're also going to review maybe your starting parameters, your starting PCV, total solids, lactate. That might also give you some more context clues. The other little thing is if you like don't have a pulse ox or something like that, your CO2 sometimes can be very helpful in helping you understand whether or not you're restoring perfusion and fixing the blood pressure. So that's one of the other things that I evaluate. So if I like walk in, the blood pressure is bad, the heart rate is fast, and the CO2 is low, we know we're doing a bad job, right? Like we need mm-hmm. to like help the patient. Yep. So I agree with you completely. Like you need to not just like we talk about depth a lot, right? Like is the patient too deep? Can we turn something down? Whatever. But like, I agree with you completely. This is your moment to take a full picture of the animal and try and really understand the true underlying cause so that you can specifically address that. Exactly. And the CO2 probably gives us more of a marker of just how severe is our problem. Yes. So step two is we are going to try to lessen the depth of our anesthesia or at least lower the amount of inhalant that the patient is seeing. If your patient's already moving, that might mean that you need to add in a max bearing drug like fentanyl, a lidocaine CRI, there's a whole bunch of benzodiazepines we talked about a lot in the last episode. Or if they are arguably not moving and you think you have the space to drop your ISO, you can turn the dial down a little bit. The third thing you're going to do is if your heart rate is low, if you have a bradycardic patient, you can just treat that directly by improving your heart rate and hopefully that will fix things. Although if you have... If you're already tachycardic or if you're at the high end of normal, giving atropine or glyco is not going to make your life any better. That is not the that is not the underlying cause. So you're going to move on. And then step four is evaluating your fluid status and whether or not your patient is actually behind on blood volume. If you have active hemorrhage, then that's usually pretty obvious. If you are a foreign body that has been vomiting for a long time and you think you have 
in total body dehydration in addition to hypovolemia, it's probably you might go to a fluid bolus faster. But if you're not sure, you can always try a test bolus, do five mils per keg over 10, 15 minutes, see if the patient responds. And if things look good, you can finish it or you can move on. And that's essentially where we left our discussion from last time. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, like when you're thinking about trying to move through this process, right, you should always be thinking heart rate times stroke volume. If the heart rate is low, fix it and see if it fixes it, right? But if the heart rate isn't low and it's fast, then you know that it must have sped up to try and keep the number the same, right? Because it's heart rate times stroke volume. So if stroke volume declines because we don't have enough fluid or we have relative hypovolemia or whatever it is, then your stroke volume is going to fall and your heart rate is going to try and compensate. That sometimes gets messed up under anesthesia because we mess with the nervous system so much. But those are things you should be thinking about, right? If the patient's tachycardic, we're going to go to the fluid side of things. Mm-hmm. If the patient's not necessarily tachycardic, then I try and stay away from the fluids a little bit just because I think we play a little fast and loose in anesthesia with fluids. Yeah, historically. Or yeah. kind of as culturally. Yeah. So now once you have a patient that you feel like you've gone as low as you can with your inhalants and you have your heart rate is normal or appropriate for that patient size, like a large Great Dane is going to have a different heart rate than a Chihuahua, and you feel that you have restored your fluid volume appropriately, or at least you're in the middle of it, the next step is we're probably going to neither add some form of presser or what we call positive inotropes. And from there, we have tons of options. So we have dopamine, dobutamine, norepinephrine, phenylephrine, ephedrine, vasopressin for when we're in an all-out panic, so that can be a lot, pretty confusing for a lot of people because there's always a lot of question of which one should I choose for my patient at this time? And I don't know. Once you have an understanding of how each of them act, it actually becomes fairly simple. And I hope that with this episode, we can help you guys make decisions faster and more efficiently so that way you can start your treatment for your patient sooner. So... The first thing, in order to really have a good discussion about these pressors and inotropes, is we really have to have a quick review of the receptors that essentially are governed by the sympathetic nervous system, or what we call adrenergic receptors. So the first one to know is alpha-1. And the alpha-1 receptors are located on the vasculature smooth muscle, And when we stimulate these alpha-1 receptors with an agonist, we cause vasoconstriction, meaning we're going to tighten the arterioles and we're going to increase blood pressure. The next one is beta-1. A beta-1 receptor is located typically on the heart. By stimulating the beta-1 receptor, we're going to increase the force of pumping. We're going to increase our contractility. We were going to increase our heart rate. We're going to increase the speed at which our uh, electrical wavefront is going to move through the SA and AV nodes. And we're even going to improve the speed and the degree that the heart relaxes in between beats. So just as much as it's, as it's pumping, we need to reset so that we can pump again. And that's like a really important concept when we talk about contractility, right? We talk about this idea of stretching the myocytes so that they 
really can form as many cross bridges as possible when they release their calcium and they unbind all of their binding sites or they uncover their binding sites, the more of those cross bridges we form, the stronger the contraction is. And so by giving these beta agonists, right, we're not, as Dr. Duffy said, like for sure we're increasing contractility, right? And that's like our big mechanism in the horse is like we want to make that heartbeat really hard. But the other really important part is that the heart, one, has time to relax, right? That we've not driven the heart rate so fast that there's no diastole for the heart to fill, but also that like we are getting that relaxation to allow the heart to really fill with blood. And that's one of the things that we struggle with like in the cat with HCM, right? That their heart does not relax the same way. So the last receptor to know is the beta-2 receptor. And the beta-2 receptors are located also on your vest, on smooth muscle, but instead of causing constriction and tightening, it actually causes relaxation. So when these beta-2 receptors are on the uh, bronchioles and in the lungs, we think they cause bronchodilation. And when these receptors are actually located on the vessels, it causes vasodilation. So some people have a hard time remembering beta-1 and beta-2 and which one's on the heart and which one's in the lungs. And one anesthesiologist, when I was, a, I think it was a fourth-year vet student, uh, she told me that the way to know is because you have one heart and two lungs. So beta-1 is always on the heart and beta-2 is always on the lungs. Now, granted, beta-2s are kind of everywhere, but for the sense of simplicity, so you can help remember that that was their nice little trick. So... I think from there, I think we can start to to dive into each of the different pressors on their own. And to start, the one that I use, and I assume Kelly used this just as much as well, is dopamine. And dopamine is, well, I guess maybe other than propofol is probably my other favorite drug. But dopamine is what we call a mixed pressor slash inotrope. So at different dose rates, we are going to be essentially simulating either the beta-1 or the alpha-1 receptor. So what does that mean? At lower doses, um, and the rates here is about 3 to 8-ish micrograms per kg per minute, so this is going to be a CRI, you're mostly going to be stimulating your beta-1 receptor. So beta-1 on the heart. So here you're going to be increasing the force that the heart is contracting. You might see the heart rate increase. And overall, the heart is just going to be pumping better. Then when you start to go to doses higher than the 7, 8, 9 range, you're in 10, 12, 15 micrograms per kg per minute, you're going to start to get recruitment and stimulation of the alpha-1 receptors, where you're going to slowly get vasoconstriction at that point. It's not that the beta-1 receptors turn off at this time, but now you have beta-1, so the heart's pumping, and alpha-1, where you're starting to get a little bit of vasoconstriction. You may or may not have heard that dopamine actually stimulates dopamine receptors. And to, oddly enough, despite the name, it doesn't really work that way. <laughs> it can be a little, it, because we're not using dopamine in the brain like a neurotransmitter, like dopamine you think of like neurochemistry, but more because dopamine is the precursor to epinephrine and using that kind of as like a hormone. So there is some documented evidence, at least in people, that there are specific dopamine receptors in the kidney. And by stimulating these dopamine receptors in the kidney, you can actually cause 
renal vasodilation increase the perfusion to the kidney and GFR and sorts. And so especially if you have an animal that's in kidney failure with AKI, meaning acute kidney injury, and they're not filtering, the idea is that by doing low dose of dopamine, maybe you can vasodilate those kidneys and try to get perfusion back. But what we've actually found is while that may work in humans, it doesn't seem to really work in dogs or cats. And so it's kind of really old dogma and the new thought, like the modern thought is that it's not a thing. It's just really for beta one at low doses and alpha one at anything higher. I don't think I've ever gone above 20 micrograms per kg per minute in dopamine. And usually if I'm flirting with those high numbers, I'm already starting to think of alternatives or understanding why am I going so high on my dopamine, but that's, we'll continue that conversation a little bit. Well, and I think too, my line is a little bit different for the dog than the cat. So like in the cat, if I end up in the 15, 18, 20, I am a little less upset than I am if I am 15, 18, 20 in a dog, Mm -hmm. because I tend to find that dogs usually, if they're going to respond to dopamine, they tend to respond to dopamine fairly robustly Mm -hmm. uh, at lower doses than the cat seems to. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you. But like when I hit 10, 12, 15 of dopamine, I'm thinking, right? How do I get my ISO lower? Do I need to switch to a different presser? Do I need to give some fluids in this situation? Like, what are my electrolytes like? You know, like, probably there's something you need to be looking at fixing. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And there is some documented evidence that the cats actually won't start to respond till 10, where dogs will start to respond closer to three to five. And I've had some dogs that... You know, five, three does nothing. Five does nothing. Seven, all right, maybe we're starting to like perk up a little bit. And then you go to eight and it's dramatic. <laughs> and you're like, what happened? So then you go back to seven and it like turns off. And you're like, oh man, I'm, I really don't want zero to 60. So then I start doing, what about seven and a half? Oh, okay, we like seven and a half. That's fine. Like, I'm happy we, we found your happy spot. So it's definitely a, a titration and, the initial onset time for dopamine from the time that you plug in your CRI and it's made its way through the T-set and it's in the dog to the time when you should start to see a change is kind of delayed. It's kind of about three to five minutes. And I would say in my experience, I don't know if that's really written down anywhere, but I tend to give it one or two like oscillometric cycles and like three or five minute cycles just to confirm that yes, the dose is working or the dose is not working. And then I titrate from there. And so I, Let's say we go from three to five, and then I wait for another, you know, blood pressure cycle. And then still no change. Okay, from five to seven. I tend to do jumps in about two or three. Um, yeah. Okay per minute. I do the same thing, but also I agree to your point about the titration. So, like, we think about the doses being, like, three, five, seven, ten, fifteen, twenty. Yeah. Like, I, those are, like, very much the doses that, like, when you look at it, those are going to be the things that you're like, oh, that's what you're going to see over and over again. But there's actually no rule. And so, like, if your dog loves four, leave it on four. Nobody's going to come and be like, I can't believe you gave four mics per kilo per minute of dopamine instead of five mics per kilo per minute of dopamine. And so I agree with you. I tend to move up fairly quickly depending on in, like, bigger steps, especially depending on the degree of the hypotension, right? So Mm -hmm. if we start some dopamine at 62 because the dog is trending downwards – I might stay at three or five a lot longer than the dog who cycles and the first blood pressure is 30, right? 
because I'm maybe not going to start at three and wait two cycles because we're in a little more of a dangerous spot. But if we're sitting in the 50s, you know, like in a dog with normal kidneys, normal volume status, normal healthy dog who is just vasodilated and we're trying to fix it. I've never had one of those dogs. Now I'm going to get one. Let's (laughs) knock on wood. I've never had one of those dogs get an AKI. Sure. From five minutes or 10 minutes of mild hypotension. Yep. It's always the dogs who are dramatically ill. Their blood pressures are all over the place. Their volume status is not normal. Like they're septic. Like their response to pressors is not normal. Those tend to be the dogs that I see those bad downstream effects of not treating the blood pressure aggressively enough. And sometimes in those situations, you treat it very aggressively. And they don't respond. Yep. And we're doing the best we can. Yeah. That is one of the things, right? Like you work your way through the algorithm. And if you get all the way down to vasopressant and it's not working, that's not your fault. And it doesn't make you bad at anesthesia. That's physiology and individuals. So, and you should approach your blood pressure management as them being individuals. Sure. That's why it's okay to do seven and a half. <laughs> we, we finally come back to where we started. <laughs> but uh, yes. So the way I approach dopamine is because we know that inhalants like ISO and SIVO cause both a reduction in contractility and the force that the heart is pumping, but also causes vasodilation. Dopamine almost acts as the perfect counter to our inhalants. So a lot of times I feel like with simple cases, TPLOs, you know, things that are relatively straightforward, boring, and aesthetically, or they should be, if they have less than great blood pressure, but they're otherwise totally normal, it seems like everyone seems to think of it almost like a failure, like that they have to get a dopamine CRI. And no, it's not. It's just that you recognize that your heart rate's appropriate, you have normal blood volume, and you're not just going to keep doing fluid bolses every 20 minutes because you don't know what else to do. You are actually, you realize that my patient is on isoflurane. I should probably give anti-iso and anti-iso is called dopamine. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's just I how I appreciate completely. it. And also the nice thing about dopamine is that you don't always have to decide mm-hmm. if it's decreased contractility or if it's vasodilation because your patient will tell you based on their response to the drug. Yep. So like if they're responding at four and five and six mics per kilo per minute, that patient has a contractility problem. And so Mm. they really like that beta agonism, right? And so that's very helpful for them. But then when you know you're getting up 10, 12, 15, and remember we said those are when we're starting to be like, ooh, what else am I going to do? Maybe this is your moment to say that my patient's on a propofol CRI. Can I turn it down? My patient's on inhalant. Can I turn it down? Can I add something to make this different? Mm -hmm. But I do think dopamine for a busy anesthesiologist is a great drug because I can give it to my technician and I can say, all right, get started on this. And they make their own independent decisions and like we just work it out. And we don't necessarily have to decide in each patient exactly the mechanism. Yeah, exactly. And we lose a little bit of the control where if we want, you know, like instead of having the direct dials. But you know what? I don't. Sometimes I want less control. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just I just want it fixed and I need yes. and like we can move on. And mm-hmm. for simplicity's sake, it, it's great. It does a great job. So general indications for when do I use dopamine? A normal healthy patient with hypotension under general anesthesia where everything else is has been normalized. You've already addressed your heart rate. You've already addressed your volume status. 
you think your ISO is as low as you can reasonably bring it, if maybe, I mean, we can always turn the dial off, but sometimes patients won't tolerate that. Now, um, when it comes to different types of heart disease, I know this can be a little, not so much controversial, but cats with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, historically, we used to think that phenylephrine or just vasoconstriction was ideal. And now there's new papers suggesting that actually dopamine, which provides that vasoconstriction, uh, is actually better and preserves perfusion of your organs better than phenylephrine. I think that paper just came out one or two years ago. Also, dogs that have mild mitral valve disease seem to do just fine with dopamine. Is it probably, is it their gold standard, perfectly ideal drug? No. However, we are not purposefully, when we're using drugs like dopamine, and I, I think about vasoconstriction, vasodilation as a scale from zero to 10. So let's say five is perfectly normal. 10 is super tight, absolutely constricted. There's like, it's like essentially like blocked off completely. And zero is completely open. There's no tone. We're just super, super, super flabby. So if we're starting at five with our inhalant with our ISO or SIVO and propofol and ACE promazine and everything else we're giving, let's say we bring our, our vessel tone from a five down to a two with our dopamine. We're not trying to bring us to a seven. No, no. We were happy if we get to three and a half, which is just an improvement, but I don't think we even ever really get to normal. And so even though they say you want to avoid vasoconstriction with dogs that with mitral valve disease, Again, maybe vasoconstriction is actually what this patient needs just a little bit because we have actually taken their normal physiology and we've just taken away all of their vessel tone and that's not normal. Do I think that we should use it with reckless abandon? No, but if it's mild or moderate of a murmur, I think it's probably okay. The severe ones, the ones with the mitral valve prolapse and very severely affected patients, yeah, I agree. I probably won't use dopamine, but I think your typical, you know, uh, grade two or three out of six murmur. It's a stage B1 mitral valve disease, doesn't have major chamber enlargement. Those typical cases will do just fine with dopamine. And it's something that our technicians have become just very comfortable using because we use it with so many patients. And familiarity and knowing how to titrate something appropriately is literally the safest way to go. I would rather use something that's a bigger hammer but I'm comfortable with than using something that I don't really know what I'm doing with because I'm more likely to make mistakes. I agree completely, right? Because it's not just like, did I set this dose right? Or like, is my patient responding? But like when you use the same drugs frequently, you also develop these internal checks um, that you're maybe not necessarily like conscious of, but like you might set your pump wrong and you go, that seems really fast. And like suddenly you're like, no, nah, let me make sure I did this right. But those things are hard to pick up on when you're not really familiar with the drugs. And so I agree completely. Like if you want to have one, I probably would pick dopamine yeah. uh, just because for the vast majority of patients, it's going to be acceptable. And even really most fairly stable foreign bodies and stuff like that really are okay. As long as you get their fluid status back, right, they tend to respond and when, back to your point about the mitral valve disease dogs, I really like your example of like zero to 10, how tight is the vessel, right? And so we talk about this idea of don't vasoconstrict the mitral valve disease dog. Well, the nice part about that is exactly what Lauren said. So when we talk about not vasoconstricting them, we're talking about not giving them 
an alpha two agonist, right? Or an alpha one agonist that's going to take them from five to seven versus two to three or three to four. And so we're talking about exactly what Lauren said, trying to return them back as close to their normal physiology as possible without overshooting it, making the blood pressure a wonderful number, but severely decreasing our cardiac output because our heart rate and our stroke volume decline because that mitral valve disease or that mitral valve is not competent to work against the increase in afterload. And so I routinely use dopamine in mitral valve disease dogs. I just might, when I get to 12, think I got to do something different, right? Like maybe I'm not going to take the mitral valve disease dog all the way up to 20 or, you know, like really push them. I'll switch to something else a little sooner. Sure. Also, I mean, if you're at 12 and your patient's still hypotensive, by definition, it's not having high afterload. The heart's not working well, it doesn't That's have true. that much. It really depends yeah. on, on your scenario. You know, we're not trying to push these dogs to a mean blood pressure of 95. Correct. We're just really happy when it goes from 51 to 63. And we're like, woo. Yeah. Doing our 63, job. Keep- 63 is plenty. <laughs> exactly. Come on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's satisfied. no prize for being more normal. <laughs> yes, exactly. So generally indications for dopamine is almost always. Now, the general cons to dopamine is... One, yes, it does involve, you have to set up a syringe pump. You have to make sure your dilution is correct because you don't want to use it straight out of a bottle. That'll be interesting. And so you need to find your like small micro line to hook it up and make sure it's actually in the port. And with that, you want to make sure you're hooking it up logistically as close to your port as possible. So that way you don't have a long fluid line filled with dilute dopamine that then when you go to give it a little flush because you're flushing in some antibiotics or you're doing something of that nature you don't want to then kind of give a little rush of dopamine because that's always really exciting, yes. <laughs> especially if it's the kind of dog that, like a mitral valve disease dog, that you don't want to go to seven and you can if you do yeah. that. And I, so frequently what I'll do, especially if I only have like a singular catheter with like a single T-port on it that I have like my fluids running in or I've made some sort of CRI that the patient is getting through that, what I'll do is I'll just put a needle on the end of my uh, extension set that's carrying my dopamine and I will put it straight into the front port. So basically it's like entering the catheter immediately and only traveling a very short distance before it's being diluted by the blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's like one of my big tricks in practice to try and mm-hmm. avoid the potential for um, accidental dopamine boluses and so therefore yeah. overdose. Just becomes a little bit of, a, it becomes a party for, mm-hmm. it's short acting. If it happens, it happens. It's, I've done it. My texts have all done it. It's just talker for a minute and it's over. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It it really is. It's like two minutes. It's going to be fine. You just have to kind of coast it out. Maybe, maybe turn it down just for a little bit and then, then keep going. The, uh, I, yeah, I usually pause it. Like if things get really exciting and you accidentally give a little bolus or like maybe somebody gives atropine without pausing the dopamine and you like start to get some bizarre arrhythmias, I just, Put it on hold for a minute and like let everything settle down. And then yeah. I frequently will like start again at the bottom. Yeah. And I'll exactly. start like back again at three and then go to five and then go to seven. Right. So generally speaking, other than the times when you're mixing anticholinergic, because think about um, the vagal or the parasympathetic system is more like your break and your sympathetic system is your go, go, go. So if you combine dopamine, which is like pushing on the gas pedal and you give glyco, which is like taking off the brake, if you do that together simultaneously, you are going to have a car that's going crazy and we're going to the moon. But then 
So you want to be very careful about how you do that. Now, on the flip side, when you are finishing your case, you don't, let's say you're at a, uh, you're at a good clip of dopamine, you're at 10 or 12, you don't want to just discontinue that patient from dopamine really quickly. You're going to want to wean them down slowly. And again, I, I tend to use the every cycle of the blood pressure kind of as a good timer for me, because that's something that's happening every three, maybe five minutes. I'm a three minute cycler. That's my style. So you go from 10 down to seven, down to five, down to three. And then once you're at three, you're kind of subtherapeutic anyway, so then you can just turn it off. And I have once, I was at, it was in the Doberman. I would think it was, I think it was a lap spay. It wasn't anything too exciting, but I ran out of dopamine. I think I had called from the OR asking for for a dopamine refill and they're doing whatever and it's chaotic. And I don't think anyone even saw my, like my text message or, or anything. And so my syringe pump actually ran out of dopamine from, I think, 12. And what ended up happening is the heart rate went from maybe 90 up to almost 200. The blood pressure tanked down to 25. It almost looked like an orthostatic hypotension where it was a a momentary skyrocket. And it was terrifying. I turned the ISO off. I gave a flu bolus. It was really terrible. And so it is important to wean down your dopamine. Again, it doesn't have to be so, so slowly. Again, moving it every two or three minutes is plenty, but you don't just want to go from high to zero. Oh, that's I agree. Good. Like, I feel like I wean the dopamine as I wean the ISO. Sure. So, sure. right, like your patient's laying there in recovery and they're exhaling ISO and your end tidal ISO is falling from like 1.2, 1.3% and you're down to 0.7% and now the vasodilation is less because we've titrated the dose, right? And so now they need less dopamine. And so that's kind of how I think about it. It's like, as you're titrating your ISO off of your patient, you can also titrate your dopamine off the patient. But the, the magnitude frequently of that, like, um, like a rebound hypotension kind of thing that they get is, can be very profound and pretty frightening. But again, also you just manage it the best that you can, right? You restart your dopamine, you give some fluids, you turn off the gas, like you just start trying to fix those things. Right. It's not the end of the world. It just can be disconcerting. The last thing that might be a con of dopamine, and dopamine's going to be the biggest part of our discussion because it, it is what we use 95% of the time. But the other thing to know about dopamine is that at particularly higher rates, you can see arrhythmias and usually ventricular arrhythmias, maybe like VPCs, maybe atrial premature contractions, APCs. And I tend to see in my clinical experience is that I tend to have more arrhythmias with dopamine when I don't have enough blood volume, where the heart is like, I can't do anything. And like, you want me to pump harder? I have nothing to pump with. And so it's usually yelling back at me. And I take that as a sign. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Right. And that's like one of the things that's what you said earlier. If you start to get to these bigger doses, because obviously if your patient is volume underloaded, you're going to be at the bigger doses, right? Because the only thing to do is make the vessel smaller at that point. And so when you get up to those big doses, yeah, for sure. And sometimes it's just sinus tachycardia, right? It's not always like a VPC or a ventricular arrhythmia. Like some dogs are just exquisitely sensitive to the beta agonism. And so sometimes you'll put a dog on five or seven and suddenly their heart rate will go up to like 140 or 160. And you're like, whoa, that's a big jump. But they're just so responsive. But I agree with you completely. Like if you're not really getting your response to dopamine, like look at your volume status. And the other part is if you make that underfilled heart contract really hard on itself 
there are receptors or mechanoreceptors within the walls of the ventricles that will actually create a reflex that we call a basal gerish, where the heart senses that it is contracting against itself so hard that the heart rate plummets. And it's something that they see in people who get um, like shoulder arthroscopy where their blood starts to pool in their legs and they're using epinephrine in the, uh, the lavage fluid and they get this like kind of pickup of the heart rate without the venous return because it's pooling in their legs because oh, they're sitting and then they get these big basal gerage responses. And so it's just something to think about that like the heart does not want to hit itself it wants to squeeze blood out of it. And so I agree completely. Like, you've got to help it get the blood um, or eventually the heart's going to go, I need blood. And then quit. <laughs> and then quit. <laughs> exactly. I need oxygen. Bring me some oxygen. <laughs> exactly. There are studies in sepsis comparing dopamine versus norepinephrine. And we'll do norepinephrine in a second for managing hypotension in patients with sepsis. And they have found that patients with getting norepinephrine have better morbidity, mortality rates and better survival. But usually the thing that is cited as the reason why they choose to not use dopamine is arrhythmias. That's the big ticket. And I think because of the heart disease in people, and that's when most of these studies have actually been done, or I think exclusively have been done, is they say we start to see arrhythmias with dopamine at these big levels to try to treat it. And so norepinephrine does less. So I find that if I'm starting to see arrhythmias with dopamine, that it can be significant. And so I either need to, I need to bring back my dopamine and I either need to go to another presser like norepi or I need to use fluids or something else. It's patient selection, right? Right. We said dopamine is for the normal healthy patient with relatively normal blood volumes or that we, or at least blood volumes we can kind of quickly address, right? That are yeah. going to respond to one or two bloses or fluid or maybe a little bit of colloid or something like that, right? And so when I approach a case like a hemoabdomen or a septic patient or something like that, I frequently will just reach for norepinephrine first for the yep. same reasons that you're saying. Yep, exactly. All right. So that's dopamine. Uh, we are in full support, I would say, mm -hmm. as long as you choose the right patients. Patient selection is the most important thing in anesthesia. Absolutely. Then preparation. Yeah. So... Okay, let's move on to dobutamine, dobut with a B, dobutamine. So this is a positive inotrope, and predominantly dobutamine is going to work on our beta-1 receptors, although what's kind of important to know is that it also seems to act on beta-2 receptors. So our beta-1 stuff is we know we're going to have better contractility, we're going to increase our heart rate, which is great, and that's what we want, but because of the beta-2s, we might also see some mild vasodilation. And as a result, the improvement in the blood pressure and cardiac output that is being caused by this beta-1 agonism is almost being counterbalanced by the vasodilation of beta-2s. And as a result, your blood pressure may or may not change, which is always frustrating to me. And this is very species-dependent. This is more so in the dog and the cat. In the horse, it works fabulous. It's amazing. But at tiny doses. Oh, yeah. Way tinier. The horse just is an athlete, right? Like their heart is just different. Yes. But then it's really hard because you, you say, you know, this patient deserves dobutamine. And so I'm going to do dobutamine. And you turn it on and you put a pretty high rate and you know the catheter is good. It's going in. It's, it's flowing. The pump is actually delivering something. And you see your blood pressure went from 50 
to 52. And you say, cool. (laughs) And that's kind of the end of the story. And it's really hard because, again, like we talked about in the very first episode of the series, blood pressure is great, but blood pressure is really, it's just a surrogate for what we're actually trying to do. We're trying to improve cardiac output. By giving dobutamine, yes, we are definitely improving cardiac output. You're improving perfusion. You're doing all these great things. But clinically, we can't see it if the blood pressure doesn't go up. It would be great if we were doing, you know, lithium dilution, cardiac output monitoring and things, but no one has time for that, especially not in the clinical practice. And so why dobutamine is fine and is great, it's really hard to manage. And my text will ask me, should I go up? I don't know. Should I go down? Well, I don't know. Should I just stay here? Well, I don't know. It's up to you, boo. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, well, and I think too, some of the response has a little bit to do with why you're putting the patient on dobutamine. Sure. So like if I have a big Doberman pincher who's 12 years old, who's having, I don't know, like a, a wobbler surgery or he's got a neck or something like that. And we get him an S size. He doesn't have a history of DCM, but like he's the poster child, right? And so we put him on the table and like the blood pressure is not great. And you're like, ugh, that dog, I'm going to give him dobutamine and see if that increase in contractility coupled with a little bit less afterload mm-hmm. actually improves that dog's blood pressure enough because the cardiac output goes up. So I do feel yep. like That's I a really see good point. better responses in animals with really limited contractility. So DCM dogs. But mm-hmm. we talk about using dobutamine for mitral valve disease dogs but those dogs have normal contractility to the bitter end right like their problem is not that their ventricle can't beat it's just that like the the top isn't on right so (laughs) when it squeezes it goes out the opening but also out the top right and so that's our problem and so what i find frequently is that i give mitral valve disease dogs dobutamine and i don't see big changes in blood pressure but i give dcm dogs dobutamine and i see nice changes in blood pressure that's that's beautifully put and i now have a this image of a heart running around topless (laughs) 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 my brain i just wanted to share that with everybody i was like oh that's brilliant uh anyways um and the last indication that we tend to use dobutamine for is pacemakers so because all we're trying to do is we are trying to improve the the heart rate and you know, you can give gly- sometimes you can give glyco and atropine until it's coming out your eyeballs, but these dogs are in third degree AV block with actual structural disease. Yeah. So again, there are times when it's definitely indicated. I think DCM is the is the classic, but you may or may not have the information to titrate effectively, which yeah. can sometimes be our struggle. And I do, I will say that I, with dobutamine, um, used to start at a relatively big dose but I have frequently found that I see similar things that you do. So like I start at too high of a dose and my vasodilation is just out competing the change in contractility that the heart is really capable of. So what doses do you end up doing? I frequently start way down at three and two and work my way up. And so you cap out. I usually find if it's going to work, it's working by seven or 10. Yeah. I don't think I've, I don't think I've ever gone above eight personally. No, I mean, I, I mean, I think that there have been times where I've gone to 10 because the patient is almost arresting and I want that like, come on heart, stay with us. (laughs) 
And sometimes it's all I have, right? In that exact right. moment, I'm like, what do I have? Turn off the gas, give them some dopamine. <laughs> right, exactly. Or like what I have, you know, and like yeah. while somebody gets some atropine or gets some, but that's like the only time I've gone to that massive dose yeah. like that. Um, but I will say uh, my impression is if they're going to respond because they have a contractility problem, they tend to do it at the lower doses. Yep. I, yeah, I, I, I agree. I tend to do either three set and forget or five set and forget. And I just wait till the case is over. So when you walk in and you're like looking at the patient and you're like, what? I don't know what to do because yeah. my blood pressure is not changing. You know, like my blood pressure is not responding the way I want it to. So am I really improving cardiac output because I don't have a, a swan gains in? I can't do a lithium dilution test, right? So what do I look at? CO2. Hmm. Is my CO2 changing? Did I take my CO2 from 35 to 45? Did I hmm. take my CO2 up without changing my ventilator settings? Interesting. So that I can like get some idea of maybe I'm delivering some more oxygen. So the body is making a little more CO2. I'm doing a better job at perfusing the patient. So I'm accumulate, I'm getting more CO2 into my blood and I'm returning more to my lungs. And I like to use that as like a little indicator to me, especially like <laughs> if like the non-invasive blood pressure is like not cycling and like you can't mm -hmm. get under the drape and like the patient is cold and you have no, like you're just, nothing's working man, that's CO2. I'm like, oh, CO2 is okay. So we're just going to keep going. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like that's how MRI is. Like everything yes. else has failed. And you're like, well, yeah. we're alive. I, I'm Check. pretty sure. There must be perfusion and we must be breathing exactly. <laughs> in order for there to be a cat crap. Exactly. All right. So let's move on. Let's do our next one is going to be norepinephrine. And norepinephrine is almost a pure vasopressor, but it does have some positive inotrope action. So it's going to be mostly alpha ones. And so it's going to cause a more vasoconstriction. And, but there is a little bit of a mild beta one in the background. That's going to keep things moving forward. So it's going to be counteracting our vasodilation, mostly either from, uh, from our inhalants and our drugs, or also from sepsis. We talked about this with septic shock. It's causing almost paralysis of those smooth muscle cells in the vessels. So it's called vasoplegia. Um, and while causing an increase in afterload, an increase in vascular resistance, it does actually do a pretty good job at preserving perfusion to the GI and kidneys, which is pretty cool. A little shout out to one of our mentors. He did a study where he looked at the perfusion of the different parts of the GI in the horse and then with varying rates of norepinephrine and, and found actually that um, despite increasing vascular resistance, it does preserve spike perfusion, which is really cool. And so as a result, you will see an increase in afterload and hopefully a reduction in that relative hypovolemia we were talking about before. The ultimate indication is sepsis. Um, and like we were mentioning earlier, you do have better morbidity mortality outcomes with norepinephrine and dopamine in septic patients. And a lot of these studies actually come from evaluation in the ICU and in conscious patients, not septic patients that also have isoflurane on board or septic patients plus propofol. And so I don't know how much it 100% translates to the anesthesia scenario or that context, but, you know, it's really hard to kind of go against the literature in that sense. And so if I know I have a patient coming over with sepsis and, you know, they have a, uh, they, ha they see intracellular bacteria on an abdominocentesis, I usually just pull up a norepinephrine CRI from the beginning. I just, it's not worth fighting. It's going to do a good job. And that's totally fine. 
Well, and the other way to look at this, right, is that a patient who is septic that rolls into your hospital is using every catecholamine their adrenals are capable of producing to be alive. And they're relying heavily on their sympathetic nervous system to maintain as close to normal as possible, right? Yep. And then they come to me and I just lice the shit out of that sympathetic nervous system, right? I mean, I give them a fentanyl, I give them a little lidocaine, they get like some midazolam, I put them on isoflurane. And I'm like, oh, oh, you needed that sympathetic nervous system to be alive? Oh, that's weird, right? And then like suddenly, <laughs> you're. it's amazing what consciousness does to Yes, absolutely. And so I frequently am like, okay, this patient needs a catecholamine to be alive. What catecholamine can I give it? Norepinephrine, epinephrine, ephedrine, right? Like those yep. are like the three things. Well, ephedrine's going to help us get catecholamines, right? Yep. But ephedrine's only going to help us do that if there's catecholamines available to, be given. to us yeah. to be given. And in those patients, frequently there's not a lot of catecholamine yeah. to be released. And, and so in those cases, I'm just like, well, if they need a catecholamine, I'm starting there. So, but we like norepinephrine. I don't mind it. Oh, I love it. I mean, I love norepinephrine. And there's actually um, a very interesting paper. I think it's out of the school in Japan, maybe, um, where they looked at using norepinephrine at really low doses in healthy spays. Yeah. And they had excellent outcomes. Mm. Uh, and so that's like also an interesting idea, right? But they're talking about starting at like 0.025 or 0.05 oh, wow. micrograms per kilogram per minute, right? Like excruciatingly low doses, um, which I usually only see when I'm trying to wean the patient off norepinephrine. Sure. Uh, but they just like provide this like baseline level of like catecholamine from the beginning. And they yep. found that like they did not ever see as much vasodilation. And I oh, believe wow. in those dogs, they measured cardiac output using, um, I think esophageal Doppler or something like that. I oh, can't cool. remember exactly. Um, but they found that the cardiac outputs were better and, you know, like it's, so it's kind of a cool drug and I love it. Um, but I do think I agree with you in that patient who is cold and peripherally vasoconstricted, um, like many of the sepsis dogs are right. Because they are trying to like, the body is trying to like centralize what's happening to them. Like they oftentimes come in and their limbs are cold, their tails are cold, their ears are cold. I do worry sometimes in those patients that if I provide relatively robust vasoconstriction, that at least in people, they see things like necrosis of the fingertips and the toes and like little eschers that form uh, that are probably because those like really peripheral sites in the, in, under the influence of norepinephrine are just not being perfused appropriately. But I think you can circle back to, you have to be alive to, to get toes. necrosis of your toe. <laughs> So you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so it is just one of those things, right? Like we have to recognize that every single drug we give under anesthesia has a consequence. It doesn't matter. The fluids, the propofol, the iso, the pressors. Mm -hmm. And so you just have to acknowledge that there could be a potential downside mm -hmm. and be prepared to deal with it. Totally. Speaking of, you actually brought up a really good point. Norepinephrine, because it's such a potent vasoconstrictor, really should not go through a peripheral catheter. If you can, you should have norepinephrine going through a central line or even a pick line through the back leg that's essentially depositing into the, the caudal vena cava. Now, sometimes we get a case and that is just not an option and that's okay. We are going to try and keep ourselves alive. Uh, you do risk getting necrosis at the catheter site. I've never seen that. Oh, we, it, as long we've as had one. Extra you did? Oh, that's Yeah, I've seen one. 
It was it was not great. But the animal was alive, so check. Gotta be alive to have a, a morbidity. Exactly. And but the I would say the the trick is do not run it alone. If you have to run it peripherally, do not direct hook it up to a T set and have nothing. Plug it in with your crystalloid so at least it's being diluted as it's being pushed. And it doesn't can't sit. Like I don't mm-hmm. like it sitting even in the little plastic bit of my catheter that's under the skin, but it's like not yet being diluted by the blood carriage. I don't want any of that. So make sure you're at least combining it with fluids. But if you do that, then you have to be very careful that again, you don't flush it in with some cefazolin. Yes. So, and the other thing is I also frequently am these dogs that are on Norpy are getting like multiple CRIs. So sometimes I will put it with the other CRIs, especially like fentanyl that is like running at a pretty good clip. Um, I will put it over there with those, even though just so that I can keep my one dedicated catheter that I can bolus through and like not be afraid. Yep. And that's sometimes, I know we do a lot of two catheters, usually if I have fluids on one and then save the other one for blood products. But even if you don't think you're going to be giving blood products, either pack cells or plasma, having it separate so you have a bolus line and a no bolus line is is another good so idea. So safe. Yes. It's so much safer. And like, that's the thing about anesthesia. Plan for the worst, hope for the best. Do everything you can do to make it as safe as possible. It's right. not about cutting corners. It's about as being safe as possible. Right. Otherwise, the anesthesiologist has no purpose. Wow. Okay. Meta. So (laughs) (laughs) that's Uh, our job to make it safer. Exactly. So, all right, let's, so our next one is phenylephrine. And I've heard some anesthesiologists call this the devil's drug. And (laughs) I think it really does depend on your context. So phenylephrine is a vasopressor and it has zero inotropic action. So it is purely vasoconstricting, is purely an alpha-1 agonist, and it's going to increase your blood pressure by increasing afterload and increasing systemic vascular resistance, which, you know, it's going to make your numbers real pretty, and that's mm-hmm. cool. And again, if we're talking about the slide, if you're at if you're from zero to ten, if you you want to be at a five and it's bring your dad at a one or a two, and you want to bring us up to a four, I think that's totally reasonable, right? And but the fear is that there's no beta support behind it. Dopamine has is more beta forward, alpha after. Norepinephrine is beta first with a little underlying hint of betas. Alpha uh, phenylephrine is alpha one and that's it. And so if you do vasoconstrict a little too much, the heart has the potential to kind of, because we already know that we have less contractility because of our isofluorine or whichever, there's a risk that you're actually just increasing afterload and you're actually going to decrease your cardiac output, even though your numbers look appropriate. Yeah. And your graph will look perfect. And it's just, it's kind of false. Mm-hmm. So, when should you actually use phenylephrine? And you know, I was trying to come up with it. And the first one that came up to my mind is a PDA. So, if you have a patent ductus arteriosus, usually they are left to right shunting, meaning the blood is circulating from the aorta, going across the PDA and dumping into the pulmonary artery, and the, some of the blood is just going around in a circle a little too much. Now, if you have massive vasodilation. And you have some kind of increase in pulmonary resistance, like you have a big CO2, hypoxemia, something like that. Exactly. Or even a structural reason, like if you have Mm -hmm. a weird stenosis of the pulmonary artery. It's a bulldog. It's a pit bull with pulmonic stenosis, something like that. And a PDA, like a real real lemon of a case. Mm -hmm. There's a risk that if you vasodilate them, you'll actually have blood moving from right to left and bypassing the lungs. And that, you know... 
spinning around circles is annoying and not great and sure you'll go into heart failure with enough time but going from right to left you're just going to die of not breathing essentially you'll have no oxygen so these animals will desaturate and i once had i did a a pda coil on a dog that was quote bi-directional it would kind of shift back and forth and but then as soon as we induce the dog even with a tomidate which should not cause vasodilation but we ended up actually seeing the pulse ox drop more than anything else. And then I started phenylephrine and then you saw the pulse ox come back up because by increasing the the pressure on the left side in the aorta and increasing that pressure, you actually push the shunt from right to left back to left to right. And the left to right is the one that makes it go through the lungs twice. So I think that's probably the only 100% indication for phenylephrine is if you have a reverse shunt through a PDA. But Yeah, I... I use phenylephrine a lot more in horses than I use it in totally. small animals. I think that like if you were to want to use phenylephrine, it might be a really good idea to also add low dose dibutamine sure. so that you are getting that beta to support the heart in the face. I right. think the only other time that I think phenylephrine might be the best thing is in when I have a patient who like walks in with like a pH of like 6.9. Hmm. or 7 or 7.1 and there's a little bit of work in people that talks about dysregulation of the alpha receptor when it gets so acidic and phenylephrine is the one that still works when they are so acidic so and at some point like like sure if you're going to be able to do like your um bicarb and like fix the fix the ph and all that kind of stuff you're doing that right away great but like if the patient is anesthetized and they need something now, um, and in the face of pretty extreme acidemia, sometimes I will reach for phenylephrine first. But I can tell you in the last two years since I've been out practicing on my own, I have used phenylephrine outside of the large animal hospital zero times. I agree. Same. Yeah. Oh, wait, no, except for my one PDA. That was yeah. that was maybe two years ago. But that's like a very specific thing, right? Like right. a very specific thing. And I also... I have done so many PDAs who never got phenylephrine, right? right. It's that very specific one that wants to shift back yep. to being a, like a, you know, right to left that yep. uh, are the ones that phenylephrine is going to be like your jam. So if you see what Lauren saw where you go to induce a patient and the pulse ox drops and you know they have a PDA, you're like, oh crap, I got to get that thing turned back around as soon as I can because yep. otherwise this patient is just going to die of failure of oxygen delivery. I feel like that's as much time as phenylephrine needs to, mm-hmm. to have. Um, but I agree. If you're going to use it, and we do in the horses and goats and things, but in large animal, you're titrating dobutamine and phenylephrine. So you're just having maximum control where you're changing one dial and the other. And mm-hmm. you know, you're just titrating your diastolic pressure with phenylephrine as needed. Which you can't do with norepi, right? Like right. norepi, you can't be like, I need a little more contractility right now. But if you use dobutamine and phenylephrine, you can be like, oh, I'm vasoconstricting a little too much. Let me get some dobutamine in here. Sure. Uh, and so that's, I like the ability to titrate the alpha versus the beta, yep. um, which is a nice idea, but then also two pumps. Oh, can't yeah. do it. So it's so pumps. much beeping and chargers. I need <laughs> to find so many chargers. I don't have, oh man. That's There's why I'm so untangling lines. They're so untangling them. <laughs> Guys, we're hilarious. Okay. So funny. Okay. So, um. All right, let's talk about ephedrine. Um, ephedrine is the last big one that we have to talk about. And then I swear we'll, we'll let you guys get back to your lives. 
So ephedrine is another mixed agonist very similar to dopamine, and it's actually kind of cool. Although, unfortunately, we see it a little bit differently in different species, or at least that's my experience. So when I say it's a mixed agonist, you're going to have both alpha-1 vasoconstrictive effects, and you're also going to have beta-1 contractility and pro-cardiac effects as well. In dogs, you tend to see more of the vasoconstrictive effects predominate. So for a normal dose, either 0.05 to 0.1 mg per kg, you're going to see the blood pressure go up, but you actually might see the heart rate come down a little bit. So that's a reflex bradycardia. more than just a little bit. Like sometimes if you give 0.1 and you get a profound response, I mean, I've seen the heart rate come down a long way, but you just have to be brave. It's a baroreceptor reflex. The the alpha restriction is going to come down in a minute. Pucker when I grin. when I see when I see the heart rate come down, I go, "Well, my blood pressure's fixed. That's yeah. for sure." Even especially the body, MRI, the body right? only works does that one way, right? Like, a, right, exactly. <laughs> and I was like, I only get catecholamine and a slower heart rate if one thing is true, and uh, so and that's and that's fine, you know. So just use that. Know that when you're giving ephedrine to a dog, you're most likely causing vasoconstriction, which is fine if that's the appropriate. If the, it's the appropriate fix. Yeah. But in cats, you actually see the beta effects predominate, which is so fascinating. And they actually will have an increase in heart rate. So, I mean, we talked about this in our Cats is Not Small Dogs episode from, you know, two years ago, where uh, ephedrine is probably one of my favorite secret tricks for cats that are bradycardic. And this actually comes down, I'm going to call her out, Dr. Ludovico Chiavaccini. She was one of my, my mentors at Penn. She's now at Florida State. She's amazing. But she was the one who really pointed out to me that cats are more sympathetically driven where dogs are vaguely driven. So when cats are bradycardic, it's not because they have high vagal tone, because they don't really have vagal tone. That's not, that's not how cats roll. They're always on edge. It's, if they're bradycardic, it's because they are deficient in catecholamines. And so ephedrine is super cool. Ephedrine, yes, it's going to work on the alphas and betas themselves, like everyone else. That's cool. But ephedrine will also go to the adrenal glands and tell the adrenal glands to like, hello, wake up and come back. So in cases in cats that have gotten uh, what we call sympatholytics, which is, you know, drugs that inhibit the sympathetic nervous system, you will, and the big one there is going to be both your opioids and dexmedetomidine. So cats have gotten dexmedetomidine, but are now hypotensive. And, you know, you tried to give glycogen, you tried to give atropine, and, you know, you've gone from 72 to 76, and you're like, wow, I feel like I really did something here. And then you're still hypotensive. Your next trick is ephedrine. And then you'll see your heart rate go to like 130. It's not extreme, but it's enough that, you know, I just don't like double digits in cats. And it just fixes it. And it, you, it almost always lasts for the whole surgery. It's like it's almost like pushing a reset button, and ephedrine's magic. Yeah, like waking up the sympathetic nervous system a little bit. Yeah, I will say the one the one area that I can be a little bit trepidatious about giving ephedrine in is the cat with HCM, hmm. yep. and that's because I need to promote their diastolic period, right? And so driving the heart rate fairly fast is not the thing to do in that situation. Those patients yep. have a diastole dysfunction. Yeah. And so sometimes if I have a cat who has HCM and their heart rate's like 99, 100, 110, the blood yeah. pressure's like 58, sometimes I'm like, ooh, 
Don't what do me. I do here? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, what do I do in this situation? Because I kind of, it's just a dental. I kind of like to just give it a dose of ephedrine and walk away. But it is just something to think about. And so I tend to give a lower dose to the cat to start. Like, mm-hmm. like I try and give a 0.05 and see what that does to their heart rate. And yep. then I'll go up to the, I'll give the other 0.05 to get to mm-hmm. my 0.1. And then the last thing is because ephedrine makes this like awakening of the adrenal glands and like release of what the uh, adrenal glands have stored, at some point we're going to get tachyphylaxis because at some point the adrenals aren't going to have a lot more to give us. And so ephedrine really is one, two times, and then you got to be going to something else. So if you're doing a six hour back, ephedrine's not your jam. I hope, oh my God, a six hour back. Wow. The, uh. So I think it comes down to patient selection, right? So a cat, a cat with a borderline normal, I would, I, okay, a hundred is not is not normal in a cat. I'm going to take no. that back, but not a severely bradycardic cat has HCM. You know, maybe dopamine is your is your is the pony there, but if you just need something kind of quick to fix it, then. Then, I use ephedrine in MRI, patients who are rolling to ultrasound, things sure. that are going to CT, sure. you know, things that like giving a CRI of dopamine is technically challenging, right? right. Because frequently those patients are only anesthetized half an hour, which is way long, like ephedrine's still going to be working. And so that's when I really like to reach for ephedrine yeah. is when I've got to be driving around the hospital doing stuff. Yep. And that's, and that's a good point just to be super clear. So ephedrine is usually used as a single injection and is not an infusion. And that's the big difference. So there's a certain convenience that comes with ephedrine because you just need a needle in a syringe. You mm-hmm. aren't looking for a pump. You don't have to worry about MRI compatibility, this whole nine. Um, and it is, I've always thought it was shorter acting than that. I think it, like, especially in dogs, it's really short, but in cats, it's longer. Um, Well, I just mean that like usually you're not giving it the first cycle, right? And like with cats, I agree, you know, like sometimes you just get this awakening of the sympathetic nervous system and they just kind of roll with it after that. So um, I agree. Like it's not going to last the whole 30 minutes, but I just mean like, you know, I find the convenience of it really nice. Yeah, totally. And then um, the other contraindication that we haven't, that I didn't actually write down in our notes, but I was thinking about now is a pheochromocytoma. So if you have something where any kind of super catecholamine outflow is really not great, I think a Theo is the post child for that. And we do everything we can to suppress the sympathetic nervous system. So let's not wake the beast. Yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Keep so that like mind. if I have an adrenal tumor that's getting a CT, I'm, whether I know if it's a Cushing's tumor or it's a Theo, I'm probably really going to just be a little careful, right? Because, yeah. like, who knows? Like, we're trying to figure out what that tumor is. Yeah, exactly. And so, I, again, it's about safety, right? So, like, I'm going to assume the worst about that patient and try and do the safest thing if they are indeed the worst. <laughs> exactly. So, and then the very last one, which kind of is going to get a, an honorable mention here, is vasopressin. And vasopressin actually doesn't respond in any of the receptors that we've been talking about. And it doesn't actually work on the adrenergic receptors, which is kind of cool because in, usually we're talking about this in CPR or, you know, peri-arrest situations, where when the blood pH is so low, it's severely acidemic, usually it's metabolic, but sometimes it's both, if you're not conscious, both respiratory and metabolic acidemia, your adrenergic receptors are essentially going to shut down and stop being responsive. And so at that point, you have, in, usually with sepsis, you have vasoplegia again, like you just have a, this paralysis of your smooth muscle, and your white knight is going to be vasopressin that's going to come in through a completely 
alternative pathway and cause massive vasoconstriction on those. Uh, it's important to know you can make the blood pressure whatever number you want it to be with vasopressin, but you're not necessarily improving the patient's situation. Yes, exactly. Unless you're keeping it alive. But usually right. the ones that you're reaching for the vasopressin, you're you're almost dead anyways. Yeah, and to get bought probably. Yeah, exactly. I don't think I've ever seen a dog on vasopressin walk out. Really, honestly, the only times I've used vasopressin has, again, been in horses, things like dystocias with, like, massive volume changes and, like, all kinds of stuff going on that I have reached for the vasopressin, and now it's just so dang expensive. Yeah. It's just not reasonable to use I think it's, anymore. like, $800 a vial or something crazy yeah. like Yeah, and, I mean, the doses are tiny, right? But, like, still. Yeah. There is kind of an alternative idea to administering exogenous vasopressin. And that's the idea of trying to get the body to do it itself, right? Because vasopressin is released by your body all the time because we have vasopressin receptors in two places. We have V1 receptors on our vasculature, which is what we're targeting to make the blood pressure better. But we also have V2 receptors, which sit on your kidneys. And much like two lungs and one heart, there's one vascular system and two kidneys. So you can always remember those two receptors apart. But the thing is, how do you get that release, ADH release in the patient? You make them salty. So what do you, so what do, you do? You just give them... Hypertonic saline. And how much do you give? Just like my usual bolus. Yeah, like a five You know, per- like, yeah, like a usual... Maybe I start with two mils per keg or three mils per keg or something like that. But like, just make them a little salty and the brain will be like, oh, what am I going to do with all this salt? I got to get it out of here. And the kidneys are going to be like, I'm going to need some vasopressin because we need to get some perfusion. I got to get this salt out of here. I need some water. Like we got to get this stuff going. That's so fascinating. That's get so cool. my body to release some ADH for me so that and I can manipulate that. How fast does it work? Um, I mean, it's kind of hard, right? Because is it your ADH release or is it that you're giving hypertonic saline? I know. I was like, the blood pressure better. Well, who I, cares, I think it's right? very, it's very like a very esoteric thought, right? That like I'm gonna change the sodium, because uh, like theoretically, I guess you could put them on normal saline, right? But you're not gonna change the sodium as fast. Sure. Um, so anyway, that's just something to think about when you know, like. Don't forget to manipulate the body to do what you want it to do. You don't always have to give the body something exogenous. Sometimes you can make the body do what you want Hmm. just by manipulating the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system and what the brain's releasing. Which is so interesting because you would think that the, what would that be? Essentially the RAS system, which should be doing it yourself, but fascinating. So cool. So like, but a lot of those patients are hyponatremic, right? So they're not going to be, like, especially if it's like a dog who's been like vomiting and stuff like that, like... He is already probably a little low on the salt and his body's not going to be releasing a lot of ADH. And so sometimes I just give him some salt. Interesting. So cool. I don't know if anybody's proven that, but like. New study. (laughs) Here we go. That's really cool. So, all right. We've covered a lot of, we've talked a lot in this last hour and so, but essentially how do we make the decisions that we're doing? So for the, I would say for your typical cases, 90% of the time, I tend to reach for dopamine to treat as my vasopressor of choice. I agree. Again, I've already made sure that my heart rate is normal. My fluid status is normal. I've decreased my ISO as much as seems reasonably possible, or in them, including max bearing and I'm properly balanced. Dopamine is brilliant. It just is counteracting my inhalant. That's great. When am I going to use dobutamine? Um, probably for the more severe cardiac disease. And that's not true in cats because, again, in cats, 
they have a relaxation issue. They have a diastolic issue. We don't want to be promoting really fast heart rates and things. It's kind of just the wrong choice. So dobutamine for dogs with heart disease and pacemakers and such. Phenylephrine, almost never. I feel like I, if someone came to me and said, I would like to use phenylephrine, I would need a five paragraph essay as to why they feel so strongly in that, at least in cats and dogs. And then if I know my patient is septic, I'll start to use norepinephrine. That's kind of my default from there. And then if I'm just looking for something for a quick 10, 15 minutes, I just need a bridge. We're transiting from, you know, from one part of the hospital to another, and I just need something kind of to, just to get us there, then ephedrine's your man. And that's kind of my, I mean, this was a really long round to get to those one, two, three, four, five points. But, you know, there's reasons why we make these decisions. There's a lot of thought that goes behind it. It's just kind of, this is what it boils down to if you needed, you know, cliff notes. Knowledge is power. Yeah, absolutely. So let's do a quick review of all of our five steps of hypotension. So you walk in, your patient's blood pressure is 50. You are going to, one, evaluate your patient. So this can be really, really brief. You're going to walk up to your patient. You're going to look at your screen. You're going to see where your heart rate is, your CO2. You're going to do a jaw tone flick to see what your uh, anesthetic depth is. And while you're there, you can do a quick CRT and look at those mucous membranes. That's one set up. You're going to look to your left or your right. You're going to check out that suction canister. You're going to look to see how much sweat is on that surgeon's brow. See if they're freaking out or not. I hope you know your starting blood work. If you are starting with some kind of pre-renal azotemia, your lactate was eight. It gives you a little bit of a sign. And then you're going to do a quick squeeze of the bag and look to see your pulse pressure variation test. That's literally all you have to do. And it takes me that full evaluation. I mean, we're covering a lot of ground. We're going around that whole cardiac output tree, but that takes me, I don't know, 14 seconds, maybe. And then 30, if I have to walk around the table to see the suction canister. Yeah, it's annoying. And then, God forbid, it's on the floor and you have to look under the drape. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I can't bend over. Um, And then uh, step two, you're going to turn down your inhalant if you can. And if you can't turn down your inhalant, you're going to get a max sparing drug. Three, you're going to fix your heart rate if it is bradycardic. Four, you're going to give a fluid bolus or some kind of fluid replacement. Um, Well, it might include blood products and kind of the more complex things, but fluids is my next step. Once all those things have been satisfied, I'm then looking to most likely dopamine or maybe norepi if, if my patient is septic. And it's rinse, lather, repeat. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to try that for three, five, ten minutes, you know, and if it's not working, you literally start over again. Look at it again. Has your patient changed? What's the heart rate now? Where's my CO2 now? What if I do a pulse pressure variation test now? See if, you know, and you're going to go through the, the same steps over and over and over. I think it looks like magic to some of the, the newer technicians. And they'll be like, how did you do that? And I was like... It's literally the same. It doesn't matter what's wrong with the patient. I do the exact same five steps. I'm actually mm-hmm. really boring. Like yeah. it's, it's just over and over and over and over again. But you get so good at it. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to comment is that, that sometimes you don't have to wait for one to finish before you start the next step. And like have I given glyco and a fluid bolus simultaneously? Oh, yeah. All the time. All the time. Have I done glyco, fluid bolus, and I'm making a dopamine CRI, you know, so whichever, all like literally simultaneously? Yeah. It's going to depend on the severity and what I think is happening. And sometimes there's a, it's, most patients aren't just like a, you know, they have one problem and you fix your one problem and that's the end of the puzzle. It's more of, 
I don't know. Sometimes we have to have to balance it. Sometimes it's not just like, sometimes you have to just play. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is people seem to be, you know, I'll get them set up on a dopamine CRI and, you know, we'll start at five and I say, okay, you know, if, if this isn't working, just feel free to go up to seven. I'll be right back. Right. And so I walk out of the room and someone else, I mean, when I say someone else, I mean, eight other people have said my name and I'm responding to things. And I get back to that person, maybe 17 minutes later and I, she's still at five and she goes, I know we talked about, we could go to seven. I'm just nervous. Don't be nervous, girl. Just go do mm-hmm. like, and literally dopamine, I just kind of play up, play down as you need to. And with norepi, I don't think we talked about doses for norepi, but I usually start at 0.1 micrograms per kg per minute. And I tend to go up to maybe 0.5, 0.6. I don't think I've ever had to go higher than that. I have to but, say, if you were at 0.5 of norepi, you need to be looking at your volume status pretty hard. Yeah. And you should be checking your blood gases and making sure electrolytes are normal because things could be awry. But but really, you know, it's everything's titrated. Everything, when it comes to anesthesia, everything is on a scale of two minutes. And mm-hmm. it's not two-hour treatment windows. It's literally two-minute decisions. So, mm-hmm. and that's totally great. But, man, it feels good to be back. I'm so happy we're doing this. And I'm so happy that uh, Dr. Varner was able to join us today. And I think this is going to become our new new regular. And we'll have to figure out what topics to cover. If you guys have anything that specifically that you would like discussed, we welcome the input, you know, suggestions. Anesthesia is a big topic. There's a lot to to chat about a lot of different species things like that um but we want to give you the knowledge to give you the power to go to work and be confident i think also by by seeing more and you start to realize that you know when you've had you know 15 20 patients that have had blood pressures in the 30s and and i don't mean a day i mean like over a couple years you know when you get called into the or because the blood pressure is 58 and you're like oh this is small potatoes and they're like are you sure like is it gonna be okay and you say oh girl i mean i've seen i've gone hell and back this is (laughs) this is nothing and it's uh, funny because the students are always like oh dr barner my blood pressure is 58 and you like walk in and it's like clear to you that they think that patient is gonna perish in a moment Exactly. And we're not laughing. No, it's good. We want you to be nervous. We want you to keep your patients alive. But yes, I remember Ask questions. Being, Get totally. Help. And I remember being a third year student and I think my heart rate went from 76 to 78. And I, I was a student where we did our residency together. And so I was talking to, to um, David. You'll know who that is. And I was like, do you think he's do you think he's going to wake up? And David's like, no. no. <laughs> it's like, I'm never coming back to this table. She's yeah, crazy. <laughs> But it's okay, you know, look how far we've come. So, um, but this is going to be great. And hopefully we'll see you guys in, you know, another week or two. And thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. This was so much fun. All right. See you guys soon. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.